Good afternoon and welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council's program with guest speakers, Dr. <coughs> William Reisinger, Dr. Sarah Mitchell, and Dr. Paul Van Hooft. Thanks to each of them and to everyone who has joined us online today. I am Brett Cloyd, Social Sciences, Public Policy, and Fulbright Librarian at the University of Iowa, and I'm a member of the ICFRC's board and host for today's program. We would like to acknowledge and thank our annual donors, sponsors, and partners for their support, especially the Iowa <coughs> Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, Humanities Iowa, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Iowa's International Programs, Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and Center for Human Rights, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, Midwest One Bank, City Channel 4 for providing online access to all of ICFRC's programs, along with the UI Library Archives. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission what? and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The full text of our acknowledgement is on our website at icfrc.org. As we get started, I would like to cover some Zoom etiquette tips. Now is the time to make sure you know where your video and audio mute, unmute buttons are located. Please keep your audio and video turned mm -hmm. off for the duration of the presentation, so as not to interrupt the speaker during their remarks. I'm going to eat. Okay. Um, Joanna, perhaps you could hit your mute button, please. Um, following our speaker's presentations at about 12.45 p.m., we will have a 15-minute Q&A. You'll be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but please keep your audio muted to avoid any background noise. It is now my pleasure to introduce our expert speakers who will provide three perspectives on Russia's impending war against Ukraine. Dr. William Reisinger is the professor of political science at the University of Iowa. He received his PhD from the University of Michigan and joined the University of Iowa faculty in 1985. His research concerns politics in the former communist states, especially Russia. His publications include Energy in the Soviet Bloc, Can Democracy Take Root in Post-Soviet Russia? Constitutional Dialogues and Comparative Perspective, the 1999-2000 elections in Russia, and Russia's Regents in Comparative Subnational Politics as well as over 50 articles and book chapters. He travels frequently to Russia and has also conducted research in China, Georgia, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan. He teaches courses on democratization, authoritarian politics, and the politics of the post-communist countries. He is a former chair of the political science department and served as the University of Iowa's associate provost and dean of international programs from 2003 to 2008. Dr. Sarah McLaughlin Mitchell is the F. Wendell Miller Professor in the University of Iowa Department of Political Science. She received a PhD in Political Science at Michigan State University. She is the co-director of the Issue Correlates of War Project and an associate editor of Foreign Policy Analysis and Research in Politics. She is the co-author of Domestic Law Goes Global, Legal Traditions and International Courts, Guide to the Scientific Study of International Processes, The Triumph of Democracy and the Eclipse of the West and Conflict, War, and Peace, an introduction to the scientific research. She has edited several 
specific journal issues and has published more than 30 journal articles and book chapters. Dr. Mitchell is the recipient of several major research awards from the National Science Foundation and the United States Agency for International Development, as well as numerous research grants for the University of Iowa and Florida State University. Her areas of expertise include international conflict, democratic peace, international organizations, diversionary theory, international courts, conflict management, territorial, maritime, and river issues, and time series analysis. Dr. Mitchell is co-founder of the Journeys in World Politics Workshop, a mentoring workshop for junior women studying international relations. She serves as the, on the editorial boards of a number of academic journals and has received the Faculty Scholar Award 2007 through 10 and the Collegiate Scholar Award 2011 from the University of Iowa. Dr. Paul Van Hooft is the Senior Strategic Analyst, Analyst at the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and the co-chair of the Initiative on the Future of Transatlantic Relations. He received his PhD in Political Science from the University of Amsterdam and was a Max Weber Fellow in the European University Institute from 2016 to 18. He was a postdoctoral fellow from 2018 to 2020 at the Security Studies Program of MIT, including as a 2018-19 Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow. His work focuses on the origins and logic of the American Grand Strategy, European Grand Strategy and Security Nuclear Strategy, Indo-Pacific Security, Transatlantic Relations, Alliances, and Extended Deterrence. Dr. Van Hoef received the 2016 prize from the Dutch and Flemish, Flemish Political Science Associations for his dissertation on the impact of experiences with war on post-war grand strategy. We are in good hands with knowledgeable scholars. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Reisinger, Dr. Sarah Mitchell, and Dr. Paul Van Hoef. Thanks. We uh, don't have a um, sort of set, um, uh, you know, program, um, but uh, I, I thought maybe we could uh, go in the order uh, our names are listed and uh, each say a few things, and uh, then maybe we can ask questions of each other or begin taking the Q&A from the audience. Um, so if that's okay with Sarah and Paul, um, I'll, I'll start off with uh, just a little bit. Um, I guess of um, some uh, perhaps background on uh, from the domestic politics of Russia uh, that um, that is talked about or has been talked about uh, as possibly uh, influencing what is going on right now. And uh, I, you know, in the end, what I'm going to say is I'm not sure that the domestic politics is much of a driving force. I think uh, our uh, experts on international, uh, on the international side of this uh, may uh, have more pertinent uh, perspectives on it. But, but let me start with uh, some of the domestic roots, perhaps, of this recent troop buildup by Russia uh, in areas surrounding Ukraine. Um, we know that Vladimir Putin uh, has been emphasizing Russia's history in his uh, appeal for public support in the way that issues are framed and policies are framed. And he himself is very concerned about his place in it. 
Um, and so it's important to uh, be aware that some of the themes or lessons that many Russians learn from their uh, long uh, thousand plus year uh, history as a state uh, and that are emphasized by Putin and uh, others in the leadership uh, include that Russia is territorially vulnerable, uh, that any social disorder such as the kind democracy would produce uh, compounds the country's vulnerability to outside attack. Uh, and that the best response to such territorial vulnerability is to move Russia's borders farther away from the population center by acquiring territory. Um, and these ways of thinking about Russia clearly resonate with Putin. Um, they don't, of course, explain why we see the events we've seen in recent months, why things in 2021 um, uh, have happened uh, the way they did. But, uh, you know, as uh, they seem to fit together, perhaps, with some uh, some increased emphasis on Putin's part with his own legacy. Uh, as one Russian official put it off the record, uh, Putin is turning 70 this year. And he knows that uh, in the sweep of Russian history, the rulers who get to be called the great are the ones who dramatically expand Russia's territory. Uh, so perhaps that's, uh, that's some part of it. And, and many people think that uh, he has begun emphasizing his legacy more uh, than in earlier years. More pertinent to the why now question is that the domestic political situation in Russia seems to be very well controlled. Putin is somewhat less popular than he has been at times in the past, but his public support remains solid and a majority of Russians would support uh, the country's efforts uh, in this situation, whatever, whatever they turn out to be. Now, some commentators have stated that Putin cannot back down from an invasion at this point. Um, but in terms of domestic affairs, in any case, uh, he certainly could. Uh, he won't get a big bump in uh, public opinion as he did after annexing Crimea in 2014. Uh, Russians are not wild about a conflict that would involve lots of troops and associated casualties. Uh, and invading Ukraine would not produce a quick, almost bloodless victory uh, that seemed to, um, to really uh, make Russian, many Russians very happy in 2014. But at the same time, he doesn't have to worry about a strong public backlash if he initiates a war. Uh, he has uh, eliminated almost all opposition voices and all spaces for opposition to be expressed. There really couldn't be in the short run any sort of anti-war movement that he would have to contend with. In most sectors of the Russian economy, um, the, uh, the economy is stagnant, uh, and um, that, but along with that stagnant uh, uh, situation, along with relatively slow modernization and improvement in things, has come a kind of barricading of the economy uh, from outside sanctions. Russia's debt situation is very enviable. It has large reserves of gold and cash. They're experimenting with ways to transact international trade without using dollars. So in a lot of ways, uh, they're trying to make uh, the suffering the public would do from international sanctions as, as small as possible and uh, encourage Russians to muddle along uh, for patriotic reasons. Also, because of constitutional changes uh, done in 2021, he does not have to worry about uh, any term limits uh, and figuring out some way to get around them to, uh, and term limits just kind of cause um, turmoil in the elite. And, and so he's in a situation now where uh, he doesn't have to worry about that. Moreover, a bigger share of Russia's elite right now is hawkish, particularly those who are close to him. 
those uh, elites who are not interested in any kind of war with Ukraine, the business elites, technocrats, those interested in modernizing the economy, uh, they're really not in any kind of position to, um, to influence the course of events. Uh, so the hawkish voices are the, the loudest ones right now. Uh, also, there are many indications that Putin is not um, taking as much time on decisions. He's not consulting as broadly uh, as he was credited with doing uh, in the first decade of his time in power. And so his decisions are um, more sharply influenced by a narrower set of people, which uh, you know is not often the best way to have decisions made. So um, that may be playing into some of this too. Uh, also in 2021, uh, another factor is that in the country of Belarus next door, an ally of Russia, um, the uh, 2020 uh, protests against the leader, Lukashenko, uh, translated into harsh repression and Lukashenko becoming much closer to Russia, sort of throwing himself into the arms of Putin so that uh, now uh, Putin knows that he can count on full-throated supports uh, from the Belarusians. And, and Lukashenko has indicated uh, in recent weeks that uh, uh, Belarusian troops uh, would join any military conflict on Russia's side. Uh, let's see, the prices for oil and natural gas increased throughout 2021, and they form a substantial part of Russia's state budget. So that would uh, be something that would, would alter the calculations as well. The um, current price of oil is around $85 a barrel, which is quite a bit higher than it was uh, even before uh, the pandemic. Also, the Russian military is more capable and better prepared uh, than it had been in the past. They have more professional soldiers as part of their uh, troops. They're about 45% of Russia's 900,000 uh, troops right now. They had um, uh, been much less, uh, say, 10 years ago, and Russia's made a concerted effort to bring in more of these better trained personnel and reduce the share of draftees in the armed forces. They've also, of course, been building uh, new weaponry, replacing outdated equipment, and uh, they're training more and they're uh, learning how to use these equipment uh, with a lot more frequent exercises. And uh, of course, the uh, involvement in the Syrian war gave uh, particularly their air power um, a lot of experience uh, that makes them just a more capable uh, military force than before. So for a whole variety of reasons then, at least looking at it from the domestic politics point of view, uh, Putin has a really wide range of options available to him, I think without any uh, pushback that he couldn't handle. So all the way from invading and occupying the entirety of Ukraine uh, to initiating military conflict that's less uh, grandiose, so only a certain portion of territory or that doesn't really occupy any territory at all, or uh, on the other end, just um, finding some diplomatic victory and uh, then returning the troops to their uh, pre-2021 uh, locations and, and posture and diffusing the crisis. Um, and, and because he has such a wide range of options, of course, nobody can figure out really what uh, is going on, what is going to happen. Although, uh, you know, every day in the media, you read someone saying, well, this has got to be the what will happen, or, you know, this, this is impossible, or, or that's impossible. And, uh, you know, from the point of view of uh, Putin's command of Russian politics, I think he's 
he can do any or all of those things. So um, with that said, I would like to hear from my colleagues more maybe about uh, what other factors might be uh, influencing what's going on. So uh, I'm happy to turn it over to you, Sarah. Okay, thank you, Bill. Um, I organized some of my thoughts around some questions that Bill sent to us ahead of time. So I'm gonna start with the first one he asked us, which is what is international relations research? Tell us about the reasons for Russia's buildup and demands. Um, I think it's really interesting if you watch the news right now, a lot of the framing around this conflict is, is uh, you know, NATO versus Russia, uh, great power politics framing. And so if you think about, you know, what are Russia's demands uh, in the conflict, they want NATO to not expand to Ukraine or other ex-Soviet countries. They don't want NATO deploying offensive weapons near Russia. They want NATO to roll back deployments to Eastern Europe. Uh, conversely, on the other side, you hear the Biden administration saying that countries can choose, you know, which alliances they want to join, that we're going to make sure that Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty are protected, that they want Russia to de-escalate and withdraw from uh, Ukraine's borders, and to, for, to reduce support to uh, insurgents in the Donbas region. Um, but I think uh, if we can also think about this conflict, you know, in terms of broader structural factors that set the conditions for war in this particular case. Um, and in my international conflict class this week, we, we did a kind of interesting exercise where we took a model by Stuart Bremer called Dangerous Dyads. Uh, and then we applied it to the Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, and Bremer identifies essentially seven factors that make war likely between countries. And he, you know, of those seven things, Russia, Ukraine basically have six of the risk factors present. So they have a contested land and sea border, which Bremer finds to be the largest factor, you know, contiguity uh, makes conflict more likely, which makes sense. Um, they're both highly militarized and advanced economies, which he finds uh, can increase the risks for war. Um, there's a major power in, this, uh, in the dyad, Russia, which increases chances for war. Um, neither country is democratic. Uh, they both have a series of outside alliance commitments uh, that could increase uh, war risks. Um, and uh, I would say the one thing that pushes towards peace is that Russia, in terms of overall capabilities, is five times larger than Ukraine. Um, and so in this model, there's a median power difference, as Bremer calls it, between the countries. And so that could diminish the, the chance for war because uh, the probability, right, that Russia would win in that head-to-head -head is very high. Um, my own research su suggests that another reason this dyad is dangerous is because they, they have a series of diplomatic conflicts that have been going on for some time. Um, so they have disagreements over uh, sovereignty of Crimea. Once Russia took control, uh, Ukraine contested that. They've had delimitation in the Sea of Azov conflicts that go back to uh, since Ukrainian independence. Uh, that led, of course, to a clash uh, in December 2018 when Russia, uh, you know, fired at and, and seized three uh, Ukrainian naval vessels and captured 23 crew members. Um, 
We also have seen uh, conflicts over identity issues between the countries. Um, so Russia complaining about the treatment of ethnic Russians in Ukraine and some of the policies that, that which Ukraine has actually rolled back somewhat in the last couple of years. Um, so my first uh, take on this is that, you know, yes, this is a great power conflict, um, but uh, there are, you know, Russia and Ukraine already had a series of ongoing conflicts and they have a history essentially that could set the stage for this. Um, Bill mentioned the idea of, you know, are there domestic incentives for war? So I've done some work on diversionary theory and we can think about whether, um, you know, yes, uh, Putin got a huge boost, right? He went from low 60s to around 90% approval after Crimea and it, that approval stayed there for four years at the, you know, around the 80, 88 to 90% level. And so he definitely got a boost from uh, domestically from the, you know, the taking of the Crimea. Um, this is obviously a potentially different situation, as Bill said, there, uh, the Russian public is not as in favor of this uh, invasion. The costs, of course, uh, militarily would be much greater um, if, if there was a, an attempt to take a larger piece of territory. Um, but in our work, we find that uh, authoritarian leaders who uh, have high inflation levels are more likely to initiate conflict against rival states. And if we look at the path, the pattern of inflation in the last year, like like many countries, Russia's inflation has increased uh, over three percent in the last year. And so, uh, at least our work would suggest that this is again another uh, risk factor for potential war between these countries. Um, are there historical analogies that could be applied to this case? I was thinking about that. I mean, I think the first Gulf War is a is a good potential analogy here. Um, because that, that also was a situation where a country was invading Iraq, was invading Kuwait, uh, and uh, President Bush, uh, you know, led a coalition effort to, to repel that invasion. Um, at the time, Bush talked about uh, defending, you know, Saudi Arabia and our oil interests in the region. Um, but I think it's kind of an interesting analogy, right, because uh, we didn't have direct alliance ties uh, to Kuwait, but rather we had ties to other states in the region like Saudi Arabia. Um, and so that, uh, hope, you know, hopefully this conflict doesn't go the same direction, right? Because even though uh, the U.S. and its partners put over 500,000 troops in the ground in the Middle East, uh, it did not stop a war from happening uh, between Iraq and those countries. Um, so. I do think uh, it's interesting to think about, um, you know, whether, uh, you know, if as we see this kind of uh, security dilemma unfolding as Putin is building up more uh, troops and equipment near the border, but also um, President Biden, right, announced today that he's going to be sending, um, you know, he has 8,500 troops on alert, but we're committing 2,000 additional troops beyond what we have in Europe. Uh, and we're going to be moving some of those troops to, uh, you know, to uh, Poland, Romania, uh, sending more reinforcements to Germany. Um, so I think, um, you know, this is another thing we talked about in my class this week is sometimes countries, you know, to protect their own security have, they, you know, they 
each take moves to protect themselves. And this can lead to what we call a security dilemma because each side perceives that what they're doing is defensive, but the other side perceives those moves as offensive. And so unfortunately, uh, like we saw in the first Gulf War, uh, these, these series of moves could potentially lead to war, even if the parties uh, could find a deal that would that would make them better off diplomatically. Um, so, so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Um, the last thing I want to say is that, you know, kind of going back to this point on diversionary incentives, Bill mentioned that Putin has been talking about, you know, you know, connecting what's happening to the history uh, of the country. And he, you know, he says things like Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are one people, they're descendants of ancient Rus. Uh, so I, I do think if you look at the the policy, the the document that Putin authored last summer, that's a little troubling because it does push in this direction of a kind of a path of irredentism that would, I like Bill's way of thinking about this as Putin's legacy potentially. Um, so when I read things like that, that makes me very nervous because uh, we know from past wars that irredentist claims, uh, right, have been the source of you know, really costly and severe wars in history. Um, so I hope that that's not where this situation is going, but it, but if that was the motive, it would suggest that, that he's not just uh, trying to get something more through, you know, diplomacy by, by moving his uh, forces to the border, but they're that he actually, yeah, would have incentive to initiate war, even against all of these odds that seem to be in front of him. Thanks. All right. Um, well, I think Bill and Sarah just did an excellent job of saying most of the things I could, could think of beforehand. So let me just put it in, um, instead of saying what could motivate it, some of the things that I don't think are motivating it. Uh, obviously, the, as Sarah mentioned, the NATO enlargement issue has come up repeatedly, and so it's, it's been a convenient way of framing this. Um, I would say even more so in Europe for a long time, it was the, the so-called um, the German, specifically in, in Germany, but also the rest of Europe, those who would kind of make excuses for, for Russian aggression. Um, have pointed to uh, NATO enlargement in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, but I think that's, um, for various reasons, I don't think that's a convincing explanation. For one, uh, what I think is conveniently forgotten is that the, during those major rounds of NATO enlargement, at the same time, Europeans were cutting, Western Europeans were cutting massively in their defense budgets and were entirely transforming their armed forces towards more expeditionary warfare, peacekeeping, you know, counterinsurgency, because at the same time as, as enlargement happened, there was the slogan in the 90s, NATO out of area or out of business. And those two things, uh, I think were not strategically very sound, but it also meant that by the time, 20, uh, by the time we get to 2014, the kind of European armed forces that could properly threaten U.S. Uh, hardly, uh, sorry, could, could threaten Russia hardly existed. And even the U.S. had moved out, you know, it's heavy armor from Europe. So there's a kind of argument where I don't think it's NATO enlargement by itself is not convincing. It, in contrast, I think it's something that was uh, overdetermined to a sense. 
yes, there's a Russian uh, history, there's a Russian perception of itself as a great power and as, as a desire to be treated as such. There's uh, various things that the US did unilaterally during the same period, the suspension of the AVM Treaty in 2002, uh, the placement of Aegis missile defense, the invasion of Iraq. Um, some have argued that um, when the US set aside um, Russian concerns during, uh, during the, the Libya crisis 10 years, 11 years ago, that was the last drop. So I think there's more rather to be said for it being sort of over, mostly overdetermined. Um, likewise with Ukraine, I think Sarah listed all of them. Um, there's nothing new about the tensions with Ukraine. It was seen as the fault line of future um, Russian Western behavior, uh, relations all the way back in the 90s, immediately at the end of the Cold War. So there's some ways in it which is overdetermined. So why now? I think that's a difficult question. There's something to be said for the prestige argument because um, I think as Bill pointed to, there's very, I think, not that many things to gain in Ukraine itself. Um, but the prestige argument might be very convincing that Putin would like this for prestige, not so much for diversionary warfare purposes, but um, one of my colleagues who is Ukrainian mentioned that Putin might be looking for a way out, looking for a retirement plan, looking for a way to kind of step out of the limelight and wants to be, to protect himself, wants to um, position himself as you know, a great leader who, who, who showed the adversaries of Russia that Russia was back on stage. And that would kind of give him an out and keep him well enough protected to enjoy that uh, immense pile of wealth that he has uh, uh, amassed through illicit means over the last two decades. I think that's an interesting, I thought that was an interesting idea and something that I find sort of uh, potentially convincing. So in terms of analogies, um, I think it's difficult to find a good analogy. Uh, the, the Gulf War would, would be an interesting one in some ways, but at the same time, um, Iraq was not a nuclear power. So in terms of intervention in Ukraine, um, the US and its allies would be more, uh, much more limited and would, for very obvious, sensible reasons, look to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia, but probably also vice versa. Um, the one analogy that I think is one that is so over the most overused analogy of the last 80 years, which would be the Munich analogy. And I think that one is a very dangerous one in this case, because then the, 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 the similarities uh, obfuscate quite a few differences that would, lead, that would create a very, that would suggest much more aggressive policies and I think are sustainable. So why isn't it, well, why would it be Munich? You know, the appeasing a dictator, giving him uh, what he wants as he takes more and more, thereby emboldening him and so on. Um, but there is, Ukraine is not an ally, very obviously, because that's where, where this all started. Ukraine is not an ally uh, of any of the major states. Um, also, the occupation or partial occupation of Ukraine would not change the European balance of power in the same way that Czechoslovakia, which in the 30s had quite significant military power that then could be added to 
German uh, power. Uh, that's just simply not the case here. Right? There's a the Russian economy might be much sounder, and, and we should not underestimate it. Uh, much is much sounder than it was 10, 15 years ago. But at the same time, it's not really well positioned to to engage in this kind of larger series of conquests over Europe. And that, those are things that are, I think are quite obvious, but should also caution us from thinking of that particular analogy. One analogy that I think would be maybe a little bit more appropriate, as a risk at least, uh, is the appearance of uh, settling the future of, of Eastern, Europe's, Eastern Europe over the head of Eastern Europeans. So the analogy would be more something like Yalta. Um, and I think, for instance, a lot of what Macron, uh, what uh, the French are trying to do is in a sense more inspired the, the idea of, of at least getting an independent um, line of communication to, to Putin is very much, I think, in line with the idea of making sure that Europe, uh, that the, at least the major powers in Europe continue to play a role, a separate role with Russia, not to concede so much as to make sure that they're also on the table. But that by itself is another kind of risk that for, and I think a real failure of Western European uh, imagination is to um, very quickly overlook the interests and, and, and very legitimate fears of Central or specifically Eastern European member states of the EU and of NATO. So I, in terms of analogies, I think that's the more appropriate. Um, I, I think we, um, we've talked about motivations. I'll think I'll, I'll leave it there. And then I have some remarks maybe for another round on um, what this might mean for European uh, security and like NATO and EU. But I'll leave it here for now, maybe. Great, thank you. I think we'll move on to the Q&A period of our program. Um, so if you have a question, uh, please submit it to the chat function at the bottom of your viewing screen in Zoom. Feel free to turn on your video function so our speakers might be able to see you, but please keep yourself muted. While we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank all of its members and donors for their support. If you would like to join ICFRC or make a gift to support our programs, please go to icfrc.org. Thank you. Okay, let me pull up the chat where we've seen a few questions already. Um, I think I'll address the first one here. Um, Dr. Reisinger has listed a number of factors compelling Putin to ignite such a crisis. Do you think the demographic factor, which so is so challenging in Russia, could be a key driver behind such huge tensions? I'm not sure about the demographic factor, but perhaps you can touch on that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Russia has big demographic problems, has had uh, at least, uh, well, since before the 1990s, even exacerbated by the economic problems in that decade and uh, its population decline, uh, which, uh, you know, then creates future periods of low population growth. And there's a lot of problems. Putin has made it a policy emphasis to try to boost Russia's population. I, I don't think that is a factor that can help us understand uh, things going on over the last year vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Ukraine uh, or other kinds of 
foreign policy actions, in part because uh, Russia did make uh, improvements. So they combated the declining birth rate and, and reduced the death rate somewhat from the 1990s. Uh, population declines leveled off a little bit, although in the um, uh, COVID crisis, it's, it's been rekindled. Um, but they are not having problems um, uh, finding personnel uh, for their military, for one thing. So as a, a strategic issue, I don't think uh, the declining population yet in the short run is, um, is something that would be seen as, uh, as a danger uh, to the country's strength. Uh, and it, it, it's certainly something that they're going to have to attend to uh, in the years ahead. Uh, they, they, like the United States, uh, rely on um, immigrant labor for a lot of key areas, and that has its own kinds of uh, problems, both domestically and in foreign policy. Uh, so the demographic uh, issues that Russia faces are serious, but I think they're probably not ones that Putin is worried about in the short run. Great, thank you. Any other comments on demographics? Okay, how much does uh, Putin's desire to discredit President Biden and lead the way to a second Trump term play a role in this crisis? Well, it would be hard to, to know exactly what would be going on in Putin's head, but I think there's an interest, um, and I forgot where it was, uh, what the where it was published, but it was an interesting interview with Fiona Hill. Uh, I think about two, three weeks ago. Um, and because the very good question is as well, given that uh, Trump was clearly more um, well more more friendly to to Putin than um, Biden is, why now and not let's say a year ago? And her argument was having being both a Russia expert and um, having been in Putin's White House, uh, in Trump's White House, that was a Freudian slip, um, having been in uh, Trump's White House, her argument was that um, Trump was too unpredictable for Putin to risk this, um, that Trump could go either way, and that uh, very much, certainly uh, after a few first, uh, uh, the Russian government was quite happy uh, having Trump in the White House, but then after a year, after two years, they were quite exasperated because they were not getting proper answers to requests. Uh, there was no serious work being done on uh, proposals they made. Uh, it was all very high level kind of symbolic stuff that, that uh, Trump was uh, predisposed to. And therefore they felt they couldn't really make a deal with him or get anything out of it. So the argument would be that now there's something really to gain because Biden will take this seriously, will commit to it, will not overshoot, but also, you know, maybe land on something that's quite uh, significant. Great, thanks. Um, the next question is, uh, Russia has always struggled with trade because they only have the one port that doesn't freeze over in the winter. Is one of Putin's goals to open up a shipping route in the Black Sea? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there is an attempt to build a land bridge in the Kerch Strait. Um, and the question is, you know, whether they want a larger land bridge, um, you know, to that area. 
So, so taking more of the Eastern Ukrainian territory would obviously accomplish that. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, Stephen Vlastos's point about, um, he's basically arguing, right, that the, you know, that the expansion of NATO, you know, how would this not be seen as aggressive by Russian leaders? This is a common argument that's been made by a lot of realist scholars like John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt. You know, they've essentially argued that NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe is one of the reasons that Russia, you know, has has taken these series of steps um, that have been aggressive, you know, towards Ukraine and other states. Um, I think, uh, you know, Seva Gunitsky, he's a professor at Toronto, had a really good piece in foreign policy responding to that. And, you know, he argued that by their own realist theories, uh, they argue that countries have incentives to become regional hegemons. And so Russia has an incentive to establish itself, especially after the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union empire. You can imagine that today, Putin wants to reestablish um, some form of regional hegemony. This is why he's had a series of conflicts, you know, with Georgia, you know, with uh, uh, separatist movements like in Chechnya, uh, South Ossetia. Um, so, you know, you could argue that what you what Putin is doing is is taking steps that we would expect according to realism, for countries that want to become regional hegemons. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so is it true that NATO is causing this, NATO expansion is causing this? I mean, yeah, you can make an argument that it, it increases pressure, but I think uh, the realist theories would also predict that regional hegemony would have, you know, there would have been a tendency toward it even without NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and if I can, I can add to that, um, I think you know if we if we imagine a counterfactual that indeed we go back to 1997 and we have a reunified Germany and NATO, but nobody else, um, or maybe we just the first round of uh, expansion. So we'd have Poland and uh, the, the Czech Republic and uh, Hungary. Would would that change things drastically from the Russian point of view? Well. Maybe we wouldn't be talking about Ukraine now, but one of the other, you know, we might be talking about the Baltic states if they had not been in NATO. So there's a question there if, if it's a drive for hegemony or simply under most circumstances, just the desire to have buffer states and to kind of not have anyone close to them, we might still, we might have been the same conversation. Moreover, you know, there are some other moves that um, the US made, like I mentioned, the, the suspending the, the ABM treaty. There's other things that the US did that would have unsettled most other great powers. That could be it, but that's the point, right? It's, it's sort of overdetermined. Um, I think the real problem was that NATO was enlarged without thinking anymore of a credible deterrent. Like the, 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 it became a collective security organization within Europe, arguably, and something else outside of Europe. Right? And those two missions were incompatible is basically still doing enough to get right next to Russia's borders, but not having the military means at that point to do credible defense or deterrence. I think that is, that's what I mean with when I said it's strategically unsound to do enlargement as uh, the US and Europe did. To, to do it at the same time as trying to democratize the Middle East, as trying to do a hundred other things. I think that's where you have a better argument because that's both overreaching and in some ways you know, created real weaknesses uh, 
in traditional politics. And then Russia was not really taken into account, right? Missile defense might, you know, the argument might be that uh, the, the few potential Iranian uh, ballistic missiles are just uh, unbearable to think of, but, and that Aegis can do nothing but protect maybe against those. But from the Russian point of view, that would make me slightly nervous about deterrence. If there's something in place that might at some point stop enough uh, Russian ballistic missiles. I mean, it's, it's hard to disentangle this and it's gonna be easy to say, well, NATO should just have stayed where it was. But I think you'd have some of the same problems and some of the real problems that might have been provoked uh, from the, uh, by, the, by the West or by the US probably have less to do with NATO than everything else. Uh, we have got a good question here from Ambassador McMullen about the Olympics uh, with the Winter Olympics coming up very soon. Um, he notes that Russia invaded Georgia during the Beijing 28 Olympics. Any faith in the rumor that she has asked Vladimir Putin not to invade during the Winter Olympics or what impact does the Olympics have in some of the calculations that we're seeing right now? Well, I, uh, I know that she has uh, stated publicly that he believes there should be a pause in hostilities, sort of implying worldwide, from seven days before the Olympics to seven days after the end of the Paralympics, uh, sort of, you know, modeled on the ancient Greek idea uh, of a truce during the Olympics. Uh, so he's put that out there. Uh, wh what that means, uh, you know, for Putin's calculation is unclear, but, but China's uh, friendship with Russia is a very important part of uh, Russia's uh, sense of security. And, and uh, so uh, really uh, uh, angering uh, Xi Jinping uh, right now would not be in Russia's interests, would not be something that Putin would uh, be happy to do. So we may in fact see a delay uh, in hostilities uh, until after the Olympics have ended. I don't know about the Paralympics. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I agree that Russia's relationship with China is also important for withstanding any sanctions that would be imposed if they did invade. So, you know, currently 15 and a half percent of China's oil imports uh, come from Russia already. So uh, if, you know, Germany, uh, you know, move forward and, and, you know, sort of cut off the Nord Stream 2, uh, oil and gas supplies coming in, then Russia could redirect that oil um, towards China in that event. So it it would that relationship is really important for Russia if it does want to be aggressive uh, for you know having these economic ties to China to withstand these um, sanctions that would inevitably follow. Uh, that would be imposed, and that could include things like uh, the discussion of. Uh, kicking Russia out of the SWIFT uh, banking system, you know, uh, not converting rubles to dollars, which would affect their ability to sell oil. Um, so these are the kinds of things that by having, yeah, by respecting uh, uh, China's wish to not have a war during the Olympics, uh, that would give them more options on the post-February 20th <laughs> if they decide to end I think I'll ask this next question. Um, looking at the US's response so far, um, how is the US doing? 
Are there some uh, recommendations you'd make going forward for response that's productive? I mean, I think what the U.S. has done so far is has been a good strategy. It's essentially uh, reinforcing support to uh, neighboring states uh, like Poland or Romania uh, that we do have uh, NATO alliance ties with. And so it's a reassurance of our alliance partners that if Russian aggression were to expand beyond Ukraine, that we would be there uh, defensively to support those countries. Um, I think uh, maybe one criticism I would have is, is it, it seems like there's a lot of negotiations happening without Ukraine at the table. And I, I feel like uh, Ukraine's government needs to be more central to those negotiations. Um, we, you know, we saw that in Afghanistan, right? When uh, the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban, right? It kind of cut out the, the Afghanistan government and that you know, I just don't think that that strategy uh, tends to end very well. So, so I think in this case, uh, I would recommend that the administration be more proactive in, in getting Ukraine's leadership at the, the negotiation table, making sure that their interests are represented. Think next question I'll ask, there are a few questions in the chat about Taiwan and China and um, what we might learn from the current issue with Ukraine and Russia for Chinese and Taiwan relations and potential conflict of US involvement. Um, if you might speak about some parallels or maybe some key differences that you see, um, I think that would be helpful for our audience. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, less of an expert probably than the other two guests, but I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, I think, if the United States uh, had kind of backed down quickly uh, to to Russia's uh, Russia's buildup and and given in to some of the demands, that would have set a bad precedent. Um, but also, you know, the United States commitment to Taiwan is uh, goes further back and has included um, some you know rather aggressive um, uh, military maneuvers and other things going back to the Chinese shelling of Kamoi and Matsu Islands. Uh, so I, I think in some ways um, the, uh, the Chinese probably uh, think of the U.S. Uh, commitment to Taiwan as being much stronger than our commitment to Ukraine security. But anyway, I'll listen to if others disagree with that. Yeah, I would say that, uh, so that, that I agree with. Um, I also think that there's, there's, there's several uh, distinctions there. Um, the, the one being that Taiwan is more important strategically. It, it changes the balance of power in the Western Pacific. It's, um, it allows China to project power um, into the region to, to expand its so-called A to AD bubble much further and so on and so on. So Taiwan is more important than Ukraine is for, the, for, for potential future aggression. Um, what I think is the point that I don't think one will spark the other or will motive, you know, whatever uh, Russia manages to accomplish in Ukraine will, I don't think necessarily shapes what uh, Xi Jinping will try to do. I think the more important part here or the, the overlooked part is that both 
But as soon as the, the, the temperature goes up in, in one of these two hotspots, it makes it difficult for the US to focus on the other one. And US capabilities are not, relative to everyone else, are not at the same level that they were 20 years ago. The, the, the US does not have the kind of lead that it, that it had during the, the, you know, the height of the unipolar moment. That means that you can only keep, you can only reinforce or deter really well in one region at a time. And if Russia and China kind of for, informally or formally try to coordinate, you know, not invasions per se, but just aggression, heightened, you know, and, and then you can use that as a bargaining chip. Um, which, I mean, if I can segue somewhat into maybe something that I don't think we've really talked about is then what what role for Europeans here? So among the questions that Bill sent around beforehand was what, what will this mean for, for NATO uh, and potential you know, the, the quest in Europe for the last few years for to get uh, greater EU strategic autonomy. Um, and I think there's two ways to see it. One, the crisis, especially if this crisis completely escalates, would underline that right now, as it was in the past, but clearly in a very dangerous situation, NATO is the only game in town that really matters. It's the, it's the only one that can do proper deterrence, proper defense, and the rest of it. And for that, you need the US. Um, that would be one way to, to see it. The other one would be, well, in a world where the US resources are more and more strained, at some point, Europeans will need to be able to take on more, greater burden. And especially if, you know, our, and I think that's a relatively easy argument to, argument to make, if the greater uh, threat or at least the greater challenger to US power or into the, the order we have now is in Asia, well, then that's where probably US resources will go and probably where they should go, which would mean that Europeans would have to do more to do defense, deterrence, and be less uh, dependent on, on, on the US moving first or everything basically being the central hub through which everything security related goes through in Europe. So I think there's two ways in which this could matter. And there are some signs that Washington's understanding is, at least to, to some extent, is that autonomy could be, as if, if conceived more as something like an, uh, the EU as a pillar those those things as a pillar within a security pillar within NATO could be something that um, actually gives the U.S. more leeway to um, focus on China or at least to also reinforce different regions at different times, depending on where a crisis might arise. Yeah, I want to follow up on that. Um, I completely agree that Taiwan, from a strategic perspective, is a, you know viewed as a much more important area. You know, when I went to a conference at the Naval War College, and it was very clear that defense of Taiwan is a really high priority for U.S. Navy, um, and more so than, than other things that we discussed. Um, I, I, I think, you know, we've seen with this administration in the last two, you know, there's clearly this pivot to Asia, as it's called, so an attempt to reposition our forces more in the East Asia uh, region, um, and and you and the Biden administration is continuing that pivot to Asia. Um, they're you know they created the AUKUS pact with um, Australia and the United Kingdom. They're going to sell nuclear submarines to Australia as part of that. Um, they've pledged to keep the tariffs in place on China that that the Trump administration in, enacted. 
Um, they're now negotiating a new Indo-Pacific economic framework, um, not necessarily a trade agreement, but an attempt to like shore up our supply chains with respect to semiconductors and, and other technology. Um, they're uh, in the the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, which was signed in December, um, it basically lays out a, a blueprint for surrounding China with, uh, you know, a network of bases, military forces, and, and partner states that are more militarized. And so part of that includes the $7.1 billion in funding for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Um, and so that would, so again, the strategy here is, is to um, bolster uh, our allies uh, in in uh, East Asia, their their ability to defend themselves um, and, and to protect our interests in that region. And so, so I thought it was interesting today, the Pentagon said that the 2000, 2000 troops that are going to Romania, Poland or Germany, uh, that these are temporary. So they made it very clear that this is not a permanent increase in the European forces. And I thought that that was kind of consistent with this idea that we're going to respond to the situation, but but we're still going to, you know, maintain our, our strategic um, pivot to Asia, so to speak, going forward. Great, thank you. I think we're near the end of our program, so let me move into our conclusion. Uh, I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Reisinger, Dr. Mitchell, and Dr. Van Hoff for their excellent presentations and sharing their expertise with us today. I am honored to virtually present you each with a ICFRC highly coveted mug for coffee, tea, or the beverage of your choice. We will coordinate delivery details with you very soon. ICFRC's next program is on Wednesday, February 9th at 12 noon via Zoom. This will be the next program in our series, Refugees and Immigrants in Iowa, and will focus on how COVID-19 has impacted these populations. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are adjourned.